Hello, world, and welcome into the In My Footsteps podcast. I am Christopher Setterlin, coming to you from the vacation destination known as Cape Cod, Massachusetts, and this is episode 52. There's another fun show planned this week. I'm going to start it off with an embarrassing story, the story of my most embarrassing race I ever ran, so get ready for that. We're going to take another road trip going back down to the Outer Banks of North Carolina. We're going to check out the town of Kill Devil Hills. We're going to go way, way back in the day as I give you an inside look as to what was on the walls of a teenage boy in the early 1990s. That'll be a nice slice of history. There's going to be a brand new top five. This is the top five defunct car brands of my lifetime. We'll see how many of those you owned. There's going to be a brand new This Week in History and Time Capsule. All that and more coming up right now on episode 52 of the In My Footsteps podcast. Welcome in, everybody. How are you doing? How is your 2022 been? Any of you out there with resolutions, how have you been holding up? We're now two weeks into the new year. Like I told you last week, I'm doing more of mini goals per month. I may or may not have fallen a little bit off when it came to healthier eating, but you know, the year is long. So, you know, even if you fall off, like I said, just get right back up on the horse. How has winter been treating you so far, wherever you live? I know a lot of people listen from Massachusetts, from New England. Being on Cape Cod, we're lucky. I don't like lots and lots of snow like I did when I was a kid. Back then when it would snow everywhere off Cape, but the Cape would get mostly rain, I'd be upset because I wouldn't get to miss school. But now it's the opposite. Once I got old enough that I had to start shoveling, (laughs) now I don't like it as much. This winter has been good because we've had a couple of close calls. I've literally seen a few flakes. We had inch or so, but nothing big. Now, knocking on wood, we're probably going to get hammered soon, but winter could be very dry for all I care. Thank you to everyone who tuned in last week to episode 51, especially my interview with Crystal Joy Smith for Kiki's Cape Cod Kitchen, her new cookbook. It was immediately sold out hardcover on Amazon, so I was thrilled to share that with her. There's links in the description of the podcast to buy if you want to go check it out. Also, go on to my YouTube channel, Just Christopher Setterland, and find the newest upload, which is Kiki's Cape Cod Kitchen. We did a special, basically a cooking show, in her kitchen where she made some dishes from the book, and it was a lot of fun. I got to chat with her a little more about the book and the process of it. So go and find that, and it's got more links to buy, and I think you'll really enjoy. Crystal's got a great personality, and she's very knowledgeable about what she does as far as cooking goes, so go and check that out. When I was doing research for this episode of the podcast, I usually would check the date that it's supposed to drop and see if there's anything in pop culture, in history, or in my life that kind of syncs up with the time, and lucky for you all, something big did line up. So coming up right now is going to be 10 years ago this week. In fact, 10 years ago tomorrow from when this podcast drops, we're going to dive into my most embarrassing race I ever ran. And the story is super funny and it's 100% true. So get ready as we dive into that right now on the In My Footsteps podcast. I've mentioned before on here my love of running and a little bit about what it took to train for a marathon and such. For those who don't know, I'll dive in quick. I used to do 
running in middle school, little in high school, fell out of it, got back into it in my 30s about 11 years ago now. It's something that runs in my family. My grandfather was an Olympic caliber sprinter who only didn't go to the Olympics because of World War II. My uncle Steve became a marathon runner in his 50s and has run the Boston Marathon every year for, got it, like the last 12, 13 years. And my cousin Keith is an elite level sprinter who's now trying to transition into a marathoner. So running is definitely in my blood. Like I said, I got back into it in my early 30s. I started slow, but then once kind of the muscle memory came around and I saw the improvements in my physique and I felt the improvements in my overall time and distance I could put in, I immediately turned to doing races. It began with a 5K race. And after I did a few of those, I amped up to half marathons and full. And I told the story of the full marathon and what it took to train for it back in episode 39. So if you want to go check out what that was like. Over the years since I got back into running, I've had some great races, set a lot of personal bests, but I'm not here to brag, at least this time. What we're going to do now is I want to tell you the most embarrassing race story ever, and it coincides 10 years ago this week. I can't wait. This is one of my favorite stories to tell. This race took place January 14th, 2012. It was the Smutty Nose Palooza Half Marathon which took place in Milford, New Hampshire. The big part of this was that it was an indoor half marathon. It took place at a spot called the Hampshire Hills Athletics Club Dome. It's now just known as the Hampshire Dome. And if you go to HampshireDome.com, you can see pictures inside what it looked like. I went to this race with another running friend And for us to get to Milford, New Hampshire from Cape Cod, it was two and a half hour drive. But the idea of running a half marathon indoors was very intriguing. So some of the things that made it unique were the fact, A, it was indoors in a dome. There was a track that went around this dome. And in the middle of the track was a turf field where they would do youth sports. They would do boat shows, trade shows. One big advantage of it being an indoor half marathon was that there were only a certain number of people that could run it because it was an indoor track. So you couldn't have two, three, four hundred people running a race indoors. It would just be impossible. I believe it was somewhere in the neighborhood of 50 runners, which still was a little crowded. But I mean, what are you going to do? Another big selling point of this race was Smutty Nose is a brewery, so after you ran the race, you were able to get a free beer. So it was like running for beer was pretty good, running indoors in the winter so you wouldn't get cold was good, and the limited number of participants, in my opinion, gave me a better chance of finishing higher up the list. Race day came, and the dome itself was a very unique setup. Everyone brought in their stuff. Basically, people would just leave their bags up near the front. You know, you would change into your running gear if you weren't in it already. And I wasn't going to drive to New Hampshire from Cape Cod in my running gear. So the race starts, gun goes off, we all start up. It's great. The thing, first thing right away, running outside in general, you can kind of pay attention to the scenery. You almost are distracted from the fact that you're running. When you're running a track indoors, there's not much to see. 
and in the middle of the field, I believe there was a soccer game going on, little kids playing, so that was interesting. But the thing is, to complete the half marathon, which is 13.1 miles, we had to run 68 laps around that track, 68. And they had a water stop at one point along the track, so if you needed water, you could stop there. And there was a timer, so you could see your time. You kind of got lost with as far as how many laps you were on, but you were just watching the time and getting kind of an idea where you were at. When you're running a race, if you don't have a running app, it's hard to know your pace. You need either Map My Run or a Garmin armband. Apple Watch probably does something like it. I'm running. It's probably middle of the pack, maybe slightly ahead of middle of the pack. I was feeling good. I'm guessing it must have been just over five miles into this race that suddenly my left calf cramps up. So I have to pull off the track. To get rid of a cramp, especially in the calf, you can use your knuckles as a deep tissue massage and kind of grind it out. It's not particularly fun, but it'll get the job done to get you continuing on. So the left calf was cramped up. I worked the cramp out as best I could and started on my way again. I had fallen off my pace somewhat, but whatever. I kept going. So now we're about two more miles in, so about seven miles into this race, and I'm running, and here goes the right calf. So the right calf now cramps up, so it's deja vu. Pull off the track. People are passing me by. My friend I was running with, she saw me the second time, and I kind of just waved her on. I'm like, it's a cramp. I'll deal with it. I kneaded it out with my knuckles again and got back to running, continued on my way slightly slower than before. So I'm going again. And this is where it gets great. I might have run another mile around the track, a few more laps. This time, though, the left calf had already gone, the right calf had already gone, and I was still going. This time, the left calf went, and it was like I fell to the ground on the track. It was like a sniper had shot me. I just went down. Both calves were done. And mind you, there's not that many people running this race, so it became real obvious. Like, I couldn't hide from the fact, like, everyone saw me go down. I had to crawl off the side of the track. They had someone who worked there. I don't know if they were a medic or anything. I'm sitting there, and the calf cramps were so bad that my muscles were twitching. It looked like I had a bunch of live snakes under my skin. It was painful as hell. I was done. I knew I was done. So rather than sit on the side of the track embarrassed, I crawled my way onto the turf field to a spot where nobody was playing or sitting, and I laid on my back there on the field with my calves just throbbing. I laid there for a while until I got over the PA system. They started announcing when people were starting their last laps. Knowing my friend was going to finish I crawled my way back to the side of the track at the finish line so I could be there on my knees clapping as she crossed. Man, it was so bad. Eventually, I was able to get up and walk. I walked over to where the free beer was, and I hobbled there, and I got my free smutty nose beer. Now, mind you, I had run probably almost 11 miles and didn't stop at the water stop ever, so I was sufficiently dehydrated. I chugged down that beer because I was thirsty. The people behind the counter were kind of surprised. And then I explained to them what happened to me, that I wasn't able to finish because both my calves seized up and I fell down like an idiot. So 
they felt bad. They took pity on me and they gave me another beer, which I then chugged down again. So I walked away. I got, I don't even think I changed into my other clothes. I just was sitting down next to my bag, just feeling the two beers just starting to seep into my system. My friend, she came over and she didn't laugh, but I mean, it was more or less like, yeah, that was pretty embarrassing. She went and got her free beer, but she didn't want it. So she handed that one off to me. So there's my third. And I chugged that down. And then to top it off, she went back up there. She didn't know that I had gotten an extra beer already, but she explained to them what had happened to me. They didn't know who I was. They didn't know that they had already double served me. So they gave her another beer to bring to me because they felt bad. So I had four beers in the span of about 10 minutes while dehydrated. So you know what happened there. I am just drunk off my ass and still in pain from my calf cramps, but the beer kind of helped out. I had to sit there and kind of stew in the booze while she went and showered and changed. Naturally, I was not in any shape to drive home from New Hampshire to Cape Cod. So she had to drive us home while I sat in the passenger seat singing different songs like terribly. The topper came when I just started crying because I didn't finish the race. (laughs) She was not, if she could have chucked me out the door on the way that we were driving, she probably would have. We stopped to get gas at one point and she told me to fix her a protein shake to make myself useful because she was all set with my crying. And that was it. That was the most embarrassing race of my life. I didn't finish because of cramps, got drunk with the free beer and couldn't drive home and cried about it. So there you go. That was 10 years ago this week. And I tell you, if I could go and do it all over again, I would do it exactly the same, except maybe try to be hydrated and not get calf cramps. This is going to end up being probably one of my favorite road trip segments that I've done thus far in the 52 episodes of the podcast. Kill Devil Hills, North Carolina on the Outer Banks is right next to Kitty Hawk, which I talked about last week. And during my epic 2,100-mile six-day road trip that I did in 2019, my time in Kill Devil Hills was maybe the most fun I had. The nuts and bolts of it is Kill Devil Hills is just over 70 miles south of Norfolk, Virginia, and its population as of 2019 was just over 7,100 people. Again, when it comes to the Outer Banks, it's a lot like Cape Cod, where in the summertime it gets very packed. I was there in the fall, and there were still people there because the temperature, it's different down there, obviously warmer. The biggest thing about Kill Devil Hills is its connection to the Wright Brothers. As much as Kitty Hawk is seen as being the kind of home of the Wright Brothers, Kill Devil Hills is where the first flight location in 1903 took place. The Wright Brothers National Memorial is located at 1000 North Croatan Highway. And this is an amazing place. If you like history, if you like aviation It's the actual spot where the Wright brothers did their very first flights, several of them. There's this amazing 60-foot granite monument on top of the 90-foot-tall Kill Devil Hill. So Kill Devil Hill is actually a, a landmark, but there's a monument to the Wright brothers with their busts up on these pillars. 
And if you look out over the field, there's several small granite markers that commemorate the flights. One, two, three, four. I think there's more than that. The very first flight was December 17th, 1903. And I went down there and took pictures with all of the different granite monuments. But it's so neat to be there and try to kind of imagine what it was like almost 120 years ago when the Wright brothers performed their very first flights. They also have this memorial to the actual moment of the first flight with life-sized statues of all the people involved and the plane. So you can literally walk in among it like you're at that moment in history. But there's so much more in Kill Devil Hills. So the other thing that I wanted to see when I was there, and a lot of you might be familiar with this, is the Avalon Fishing Pier. It's on the North Virginia Dare Trail. And the reason why I think you may know it, even if you've never heard of the Avalon Pier, is because on the Weather Channel, when hurricanes come towards the Outer Banks, that is usually what they film to show the surf. It was first built in 1958 and is about 700 feet long, and it's amazing. Go to avalonpier.com, and they have webcams where you can go and see what it's like there right now. I just went and checked it out, and it's sunny down there in Kill Devil Hills, and there was a bunch of pigeons out at the end of the pier. It's really neat. You kind of lose yourself in it. If you're going to go down there, though, you're going to want to spend the night, spend some time. I ended up staying at a Best Western, but it was right on the beach, which was neat. It was the best accommodations I had during my entire road trip. It was one of those things where I felt like I was getting away with something where I'm right on the water. It was upper 60s was the temperature with it being sunny, and I'm right on the beach, and it was very cheap. And I was like, wow. But the best part was getting up early, early in the morning and walking out, just literally slipping on a pair of shoes and walking out on the beach and watching the sunrise on the beach on the Outer Banks. That was one of the best things on the entire trip was getting that moment. And if you go to OuterBanks.com, You'll find more places to stay if you look up Kill Devil Hills. I've featured that website basically on every episode of the podcast that I've been on the Outer Banks. It's like, this is the fourth one. So it's definitely a valuable resource. But if you're down there and you're staying, you're going to want to eat somewhere. And there's, there's a place down there that I could not wait to share it with you just for the name. So at 1219 South Croatan Highway, there's a place called Bob's Grill. But on the sign, the full name is Bob's Eat and Get the Hell Out. And it was, I laughed when I saw it and I was like, oh, I'm going in there. I thought it was going to be a place where you'd get yelled at and insulted. Like on Cape Cod in Yarmouthport, we have a place called Jack's Outback. And well, back in the day, it used to be one where they would kind of be rude, but it was in a fun way. And I thought it was going to be like that, but they weren't rude down at Bob's Eat and Get the Hell Out. They were very nice. I got the Bob's special, which was eggs, pancakes, and bacon or sausage, and I got a side of home fries. But let me tell you, the pancakes were bigger than my head. Oh my God, they were great. So I highly recommend them. Check out bobsgrillobx.com and you'll get to see more of what it's all about. If breakfast or brunch isn't your thing, you can go and have a nice meal at Max's Italian Restaurant. They're at 1712 North Croatan Highway and also at maxesobx.com. They're pizza and subs, but also some Italian dinners, pastas. 
I am one that I test out how good a place's subs are by getting a chicken parm sub. That's people that know me know that's my criteria. And Max's passed the test. It was great. And of course, if you want souvenirs, you can go to the Super Wings. I think I mentioned Super Wings in one of the previous road trips on the Outer Banks where they have all the normal tourist trap stuff. I bought bumper stickers and probably pens and shot glasses and such. And another great thing about Kill Devil Hills and the Outer Banks in general is that everything is basically right there. The places that I've mentioned before, Duck, Southern Shores, Kitty Hawk, and now Kill Devil Hills, they're all lined up right next to each other. And the great thing is I still have two more places on the Outer Banks to feature on the road trip that are going to be awesome. I can't wait to share them. As I say with all of these places, whether it's this road trip from 2019 or any of the other segments that I've done on the podcast, don't just take my word for it. Go down to wherever it is and find your own way. There's probably things that you'll see in these places that I didn't see or I forgot to mention. And that's what makes it great. That's what I love about travel and exploration. But I highly recommend Kill Devil Hills. The Outer Banks in general I do, but Kill Devil Hills is kind of that epicenter. I would highly recommend the Wright Brothers Memorial. Spend some time there. If you've ever flown anywhere, you should have an appreciation for what got started on those fields. And visit the Avalon Fishing Pier, if not for the fact that you can see it and you'll immediately, if you look at it from the side, with the pier stretching out into the ocean, you'll probably recognize it from many hurricane videos from back in the day on the Weather Channel. And as I said, visit OuterBanks.com to get more info. I have the link in the description of the podcast. And I'll be back next week in episode 53 as we visit Roanoke Island. And this is one of those crown jewels in American history that kind of float under the radar. Look up the lost colony of Roanoke and what went down there. It was the first civilization established by Europeans in America, and it did not go so well. So I go there for episode 53, and it's going to be great to share that with you next week on the next road trip. It's a new year. It's a new day. Is it a new you? It is time to head over to wearyourwishes.com and see all that is new there in clothing, accessories, and so much more. As Katie Marks heads towards the one-year anniversary of Wear Your Wish, she's always adding new things and also promoting the things that have been most popular with all of her customers. There's everything from hats and sweatshirts to stones and jewelry and necklaces. Anything you could want is there. It all comes from the mind and the heart and the soul of Katie Marks. There's fun and unique stuff like the Blow Me Dandelion sticker, which is great for anyone's car. Zodiac scented candles, Starburst logo sweatshirts and t-shirts with the 1111 Wear Your Wish. If you're from Cape Cod, it's great to support local businesses, but you don't have to be from Cape Cod to represent Wear Your Wish. It's so much more than clothing, jewelry, accessories. It's a state of mind. Wear Your Wish and its product are an example of betting on yourself and going with your heart and soul like Katie Marks did. 
and she's always adding new products, always listening to the customers. So go to wearyourwishes.com to visit Wear Your Wish and all of their products. It costs nothing to look, and you will find something you like, something that you will be happy and proud to have and to share. So visit Wear Your Wish, and from Katie Marks to all of you, she wishes you a very happy new year. Super Bowl is the single biggest game in professional sports, routinely drawing the biggest crowds, the biggest numbers, tickets to sell for ungodly sums, legendary halftime shows. So this week in history, we are going back 55 years to January 15th, 1967, to the very first ever Super Bowl. Back then, it was known as the first ever AFL-NFL championship game. Between the AFL champion Kansas City Chiefs and the NFL champion Green Bay Packers. The Packers won the game 35 to 10 behind quarterback and game MVP Bart Starr in front of a crowd of over 61,000 people at the Los Angeles Memorial Coliseum. The Packers had finished the season 12 and 2, while the Chiefs were 11 2 and 1. And although the first half was competitive with Green Bay leading 14 to 10, they took over in the second half, scoring three more touchdowns and putting Kansas City to bed. This game and the second game, which would eventually be called the Super Bowl, retroactively, this game was Super Bowl one. But these first two games were both won by Green Bay and their coach Vince Lombardi, whose dominance in these first two years earned him the chance to have his name on the actual football trophy. It's now the Vince Lombardi trophy that is handed out every year. The first Super Bowl is the first and only game in the history of the Super Bowl to be simulcast on two different networks as well, since NBC played the AFL games and CBS played the NFL games. The NFL League was seen as vastly superior to the AFL that had only been created in 1960. And in Super Bowl III, when the New York Jets beat the Baltimore Colts, that was kind of when the AFL was finally seen as for real. In 1970, the AFL and NFL merged to become the National Football League with the AFL becoming the AFC, American Football Conference, and the NFL becoming the NFC, the National Football Conference. And all of this history that came from then, the legendary games and performers and halftime shows and commercials of the Super Bowl in the last 55 years all got started as the AFL-NFL championship game this week in history 55 years ago. And for the new time capsule, we're going to stick to the same day. We're going to go back and see what was going on in the world of pop culture on the day surrounding the first ever Super Bowl, January 15th, 1967. The number one song was I'm a Believer by the Monkees. This was off their album More of the Monkees and was actually written by Neil Diamond. The song was number one for seven weeks, propelled by the Monkees TV show that was syndicated weekly and ended up becoming the biggest selling single for 1967. I'm a Believer is one of fewer than 40 singles ever to sell more than 10 million physical copies worldwide, too. So that shows you how big this song was back then. The number one movie was The Bible, In the Beginning. 
it recounts the first 22 chapters of the biblical book of Genesis, from creation to Adam and Eve, all the way up to the blinding of Isaac. It made $35 million at the box office on a budget of somewhere between 15 to $18 million, so it was a modest success. It clocks in at just under three hours, so it's kind of long to sit through, I would imagine. It actually doesn't have a rating on Rotten Tomatoes, but 89% of Google users like the movie, so I guess it's got a good recommendation. The number one TV show was Rodgers and Hammerstein's Cinderella. This was actually a 1965 made-for-TV movie that would be replayed several times in the oncoming years. It starred Ginger Rogers and Leslie Ann Warren. Ironically, in 1997, this production would be reimagined with Whitney Houston and Brandy starring in it. And from what I've researched, every time they do one of these Cinderella, Rogers and Hammerstein things, they do great in the TV ratings. And if you were alive back January 15th, 1967, if you were a football fan back then, if you wanted to go to the AFL-NFL championship game, you could get a ticket for as low as $10 or $334 in 2022. I was just doing a quick search, and the cheapest ticket for Super Bowl 56, which is coming up in a few weeks, is just over $7,000, with the average price being $12,000 which they're saying if this holds up, it'll be the most expensive Super Bowl ever. So there you go. If you want to go to the Super Bowl, it's like the same as a year's rent for a lot of people. But that'll wrap up another time capsule and another This Week in History. Check out next week, episode 53, when I'll be back to find out more of what was going on in the world. This is definitely an interesting top five as when I was planning out, I do well in advance. I have lists of potential podcast topics all the way down the line, top fives, this week in history, retro topics, etc. This was one, speaking of defunct car brands, that I did not think was going to be that good. The main reason being that I didn't think there were that many famous defunct car brands of my lifetime. That's what I try to stick it to with this podcast is things that have occurred since I've been on this earth. And when doing the research for this top five, I found there were way more than I expected. And I even owned cars by some of these brands. A few I was even surprised that they were now no longer in business. But let's dive in. Like I said, as always, top five lists are in no particular order. As always, we have a few honorable mentions to start off. So the honorable mentions include... The brands Mercury, Plymouth, Saab, and Scion. Did you know that Saab and Scion didn't exist anymore? Because I didn't. I was shocked. And Scion's been out of business for like five years now. It's just shocking how you can know a lot about certain things and then other things just slip your mind. Let's jump into the actual top five, though. Top five defunct car brands of my lifetime. Number one is Oldsmobile. The company was one of the originals, started by a man named Ransom Olds in 1897. In total, Oldsmobile produced more than 35 million vehicles during its existence, including more than 1 million per year between 1983 and 86. They faced growing competition from the premium vehicles in the 1990s, 
and eventually they closed down in 2004. And when they did close down, they were at the time the oldest car brand in America. Number two was Pontiac. And my very first car I ever had was a Pontiac Grand Prix. So I owned a now defunct car brand. Pontiac, much like Oldsmobile, was a General Motors brand, and they were founded in 1925. In addition to the Grand Prix, Pontiac had the Grand Am, the Firebird, and the Trans Am, among others. But it kind of went down the same path as the Oldsmobile, under the same banner of General Motors, facing increasing competition, and Pontiac went out of business in 2010. Number three is AMC or American Motors Corporation. I included them because they have two of the most famous terrible cars ever, those being the AMC Pacer and the AMC Gremlin. They were a smaller company with a tighter budget, which may explain some of the cars not being that great. They were founded in 1954, and declining sales in the 1970s, they were going to go out of business, but then Renault, another car company, bought a major stake in it, and then they were eventually bought by Chrysler. AMC was renamed Jeep Eagle Corporation in 1988, and they were fully merged into Chrysler in 1990. Number four is Saturn. I actually owned three Saturn cars in the early 2000s. I had the SL1, I had the ION. Saturn was formed in 1985, another subsidiary of General Motors. Like I said, they had the L-Series, they had the View, they had the Aura. Near the end, they had the Sky that was like the sports model. It looked a little bit like a Corvette. They even had the EV1, which is an electric vehicle from 1996 to 99, so way before the electric vehicles of today. The Saturn brand was meant to compete with the Japanese imports, but it did not really happen, and they were closed down in 2010. And finally, number five on my list of the top five defunct car brands of my lifetime, save the best for last here, it was the DeLorean. If you don't know the name DeLorean, you're kidding yourself, but if you really don't, check out Back to the Future, it was the time machine. The brand was founded in 1975 by a man named John DeLorean, and this company is known just for the one model, that silver, stainless steel-looking sports car with the gull-wing doors. If not for Back to the Future, this brand would likely have been a footnote forgotten totally, but the fact that it was in all three movies of the trilogy has allowed it to live on. The company went out of business in 1982, three years before Back to the Future. But if you long for those days or if you wish that you could have your own Back to the Future time machine, if you go to DeLorean.com, you can find used ones for sale. And they have them based on different conditions. But if you want a mint condition DeLorean, it's at least $70,000. That's the minimum. But there you go. The top five defunct car brands of my lifetime. Did you own any of these? Did you own an Oldsmobile, Pontiac? AMC, Saturn, or a DeLorean? Let me know, and I'll be back next week with a brand new top five that'll be just as random as this one. If you're looking to eat better, save some money on your food budget, 
and have some fun, maybe take up a new hobby, make sure to get Kiki's Cape Cod Kitchen, the brand new cookbook by Crystal Joy Smith on Amazon.com. It's 192 pages, chock full of every possible recipe you could want. Cape Cod is more than cranberries and seafood, and Kiki puts her own culture, her own family history, and her own love of cooking on every page. Hardcover or paperback, there's so much more than seafood. There's appetizers, clam chowder, sweet and tangy ribs, a classic take on the Cape Codder cocktail, and so much more. Visit her YouTube channel as well. Kiki's Cape Cod Kitchen is perfect for anyone kicking off the new year, looking to try something new, eat better, eat healthier, and save money by cooking at home. So get Kiki's Cape Cod Kitchen on Amazon, at Barnes & Noble, follow her on social media, and YouTube as well. Kiki's Cape Cod Kitchen. Having posters and various other miscellaneous items tacked to your wall as a teenager is not something that's new or old. It's been around probably since the 1960s. I'm not sure. I'd have to ask my parents. But as a kid, it's great when you get to that point that you can put your favorite things on your wall and be able to see them all the time. And so over the holidays, I've been digitizing a lot of my old VHS tapes that I filmed like 65 hours worth of material with my old camcorder. That's going to be a segment on a podcast coming down the line. But essentially, a lot of these films are from high school were in my bedroom. And what I would find is I'd see my old posters and such on the wall. And eventually you got to the point where I said, I probably should just talk about this and the whole process of what I chose, why it was there, how it may be different from today, because everything that was on my wall was a form of self-expression of what I liked or what I believed in. And there were few things cooler than going into a place like Spencer Gifts in the Mall or Newbury Comics and going through the posters where they'd have the whole big kind of like a flip book and you would flip each one and it would show you the poster and tell you where in the slot below it was. And I'll be honest, when I started choosing all of the things for my wall. It was mainly sports. For a while, I shared a bedroom with my brother. And so it was kind of half and half. And I also didn't want to put posters up that may be inappropriate for him because he was six years younger than me. Well, it was mostly my mother and stepfather would not allow me to. So I should stress that point. I probably would have put up more bikini clad models If my mother and stepfather didn't kind of, "Eh, don't put those up so your brother can see them. One thing that I had lots of on my wall were pennants. They were triangle, elongated triangles with a specific sports team logo and their name on it. And usually in the colors of that team's uniform. I'm sure some of the ones from back then may have slight value if I still had them, but teams like the Houston Oilers who don't exist anymore, they're now the Tennessee Titans in the NFL, that may be worth something. Otherwise, they were just made of felt and a little bit thicker at the end so you could stick a thumbtack in there to get them on the wall. And in the early 90s, when I first was amassing these things to stick on my wall. Most of the local teams were not that great. So speaking like the New England Patriots were a laughing stock in the early 1990s. 
So rather than be a huge fan, they would be like my second favorite football team. My first favorite team was the Detroit Lions. And that was mainly down to their running back, Barry Sanders, who was my favorite football player ever. In fact, I believe it was in eighth grade in shop class. We had to make a small end table and I used my Detroit Lions pennant to trace to do that on the top of the table. My mother still has it. The Detroit Lions logo. And now they're the laughingstock team. So I had NFL pennants, baseball pennants, and a big, huge Barry Sanders poster. It said Silver Streak at the bottom, and it had a train behind him. I had to go look it up. I actually found it. I probably could buy it and put it on my wall again. I had a Michael Jordan one, naturally, because he was and is the best basketball player ever. No question. And it was one of him slam dunking the earth into the hoop. I had, for a while, the Dream Team, USA basketball team. I spoke about them last week on the podcast for the best sports teams outside of New England. I had this awesome Shaquille O'Neal poster from when he was a rookie or second year with Orlando. And it was called, it said Future Shock at the top. And there were these power lines behind him as he, he just had the ball. He wasn't doing anything with it, but that was just a badass poster. I loved Shaq from when he was at LSU and then Orlando. Then he went to the Lakers and I didn't like him as much, but he got to come play for the Celtics. So it was all right. I started working when I was 12, but I didn't really make lots of money. So you didn't always have money to waste on posters because they weren't cheap. They were cheap enough, but they were usually about three feet by two feet. So, you know, they were a little more expensive. But the trick was if you didn't have the money to get posters from the store, you could always buy a sports magazine like Sporting News or something like that. And they would have big magazine page size pictures of athletes. And this was real ghetto. You just tear them out and tack them on the wall. They would rarely tear clean out of the magazine. So you had to get a pair of scissors and cut the edge so it looked like it was an official poster. But I mean, everybody knew. I had a few of those like Larry Bird, Magic Johnson. I think I had David Robinson. But they were magazine pictures. I know for sure that I had a very nice magazine picture of Kurt Cobain that was like right above my bed. It was a good one. He was sitting in front of the camera. It was like he would be looking down at you kind of. I can't explain it, but it's a famous photo that came out like right before or right after he died. I'm a big fan of Garfield, the comic strip and the cartoons and such. Cause that's what I grew up with. So at one point I had this Garfield towel, like a beach towel and I had it tacked above my bed, which was a weird, I don't know why I stuck it there. In a sure sign that I am getting old, once I mentioned the Garfield towel, I kind of paused recording the podcast, and I went on Google to try to find it. And I'm looking at all these towels, and I've got it down to like five or six that it could have been, and I can't remember. I mean, granted, it was almost 30 years ago I had it, but I'm looking at them like, I don't remember if it's this one or not. But I did. I had a Garfield towel above my bed. Eventually, when I got later into high school, probably my junior year, I was then allowed to have a little more adult stuff on my wall. So I immediately got myself a Pamela Anderson calendar. If you're young and you don't know who she is, just look up Baywatch and that'll just tell you all you got to know. Baywatch was a show that was just 
so bad, but it had Pamela Anderson in it. But I think once my family, once we moved out of my childhood home, basically from then on, I didn't have anything really on my wall after that. It was almost like that was the line of demarcation kind of for childhood. Because I feel for a lot of people that posters and photos and such on your wall, that's more of a childhood thing. It's similar to having pictures inside your locker and such at high school. I would think that if someone came to where I lived and were in my bedroom and saw just tons of posters on the wall, they would be like, wow, either you are a child trapped in a man's body or you got some other serious issue. No offense to anyone who's out there that's in their 40s that has a bunch of posters on their wall. Please don't get offended. But I hope that me mentioning just what I had on my wall brings back memories for you of if you had things on your wall during high school. What did you have? You know, if you grew up in the 70s or in the 90s or 2000s, it must have been different. Let me know what you had. Shoot me a message if it's anything fun or more embarrassing than my Garfield towel up on the ceiling. That's going to wrap up episode 52 of the In My Footsteps podcast. Thank you so much to everyone who has been tuning in, who's been sharing it, who's been letting me know what you like. I really appreciate it. I've got more and more stuff to come, so just stick with it. It's going to be a lot of fun stuff throughout 2022. Be sure to tune into the live streams. I call them Without a Map every Friday at 8 p.m. on Instagram. I finally kicked off 2022. I had taken a few weeks off because the Fridays always felt it was Christmas Eve, then New Year's Eve, and I didn't think anyone would want to be watching a live stream. So I waited a few weeks, but now they're back. Check out my website, ChristopherSetterland.com, which is operated, updated, was designed by my oldest friend, Barry Menard. It's got all six of my first books. It's got links to the podcast. It's got links to my In My Footsteps podcast blog. So everything for me kind of starts there. But you can find me on social media, Instagram, Twitter. Subscribe to my YouTube channel. Go and check out the Kiki's Cape Cod Kitchen video that went up last week in conjunction with episode 51. I had a blast making that video and doing the interview. And I'm glad to see that Crystal's book is doing so well. That just makes me feel good. If you're looking to get healthier mentally, physically in the new year, come down to Mind Body Spine Chiropractic in Brewster on Route 6A. Visit myself or Coach KO or the man himself, Dr. Michael Singleton, who I've said forgets more in an hour than I'll know in my lifetime about physical and mental well-being, and I can't stress enough how great the operation is down there. Don't forget to say hi to Heather when you walk in as well, but yeah, check us out. If you want to buy me a coffee, you can go to buymeacoffee.com, find the In My Footsteps podcast on there. Any donations go right back into advertising for the podcast. Speaking of advertising for the podcast, if you're a local business, Cape Cod, Southeastern Mass, and you want me to promote you on the podcast, shoot me a message. I love to promote local businesses. Granted, a lot of them are my friends, but those are the people that deserve to get mentioned. So definitely reach out. Small businesses promoting small businesses is the way that we make everything go around. And as I've said repeatedly about the importance of mental health, being in control of your own happiness, positivity breeds positivity. That's something that I'm trying to stress for myself in the new year. And I may say it on here 
to all of you listening, but I'm also saying it for myself. But the big thing is to go easy on yourself. If you're going through a tough time, if you feel like the world's not where you want it to be, if you're struggling with whatever you've got going on, lean into what makes you happy and go easy on yourself because nothing tops your own mental health. And hopefully, if you're listening, this podcast gives you a little bit of happiness. So I'm going to keep going with that. And that includes next week when we jump into episode 53 of the podcast. We're going to talk about the Jolly Jane poisoning murders with some good true crime for you. We're going to take another road trip, like I said, to the lost colony of Roanoke, Roanoke Island, North Carolina. I'm going to go way, way back in the day to my seventh grade field trip to New York City and what it was like being a 13-year-old from Cape Cod in the Big Apple. There's going to be a new top five, which includes the top five 1980s educational PC games, which I had a blast putting together. There'll be another new This Week in History and Time capsule, all coming up on episode 53 of the In My Footsteps podcast next week. And remember, in this life, don't walk in anyone else's footsteps, create your own path, and enjoy every moment you can on this journey because you never know. Live each day the best you can. Positivity breeds positivity. Thank you all for listening. I appreciate all of you, whether you're family or friends or people that I've never met before. Thank you all for tuning in, and I will talk to you all again soon. 